Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. I am your host Howard Sides and uh, we're continuing our study here in Revelation chapter 3 of this letter to the church in Sardis and we've uh, just gone through the history of the city of Sardis so now we're going to get into the actual letter itself and uh, discuss the spiritual application here. So let's begin by reading the passage again. It's three verses, or six, I'm sorry, six verses. And then we'll uh, get into breaking down the letter itself. Uh, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay. All right, uh, the letter itself is broken down uh, into segments, uh, which I always like to give those out at the beginning. So if you're taking notes or if you want to write them in your Bible uh, to kind of help you in further study, uh, hopefully it will. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the first uh, section of this letter is verses 1 and 2, which talks about the notable reputation of this church the notable reputation of this church verses one through two uh, the second part is uh, verses three through six and that talks about the needed reformation in this church the needed reformation in this church okay so uh, probably today we're <laughs> Obviously, only going to get through that first part there, the notable reputation of this church. We'll see how far we get. Uh, within that, there is several divisions there. Uh, each one of them talks a little bit about this reputation of the church. First, uh, the church is fully weighed by the Lord. That's the first part of verse 1. It's fully weighed. And then the second part is that it is found uh, wanting. So it's fully weighed, and it's found wanting. Okay? All right, so first of all, uh, the church is uh, fully weighed by the Lord. Now let's look at that in this first part of this verse. It says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Okay, so we're talking about two things here. Uh, the seven spirits of God and then the seven stars. And as the letter unfolds, 
we'll see that what the picture is here is uh, these are two arms of a balancing scale. On one side, of course, is this seven spirits of God, and on the other is these seven stars in this arms of the scale. Uh, now, the seven spirits of God uh, on the one arm of the scale represents the witness of God to the church. The witness of God to the church. On the other side of the scale are these seven stars, which is the witness of the church to God. The witness of the church to God. All right, so uh, the first arm, the, uh, the seven spirits of God, which is the witness of God to the church. Let's talk about that. Uh, these seven spirits that are mentioned here, they're mentioned four times, uh, all in the book of Revelation. Seven spirits are mentioned four times, all in the book of Revelation. The first time we come across it is in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4, which says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, this talks about the seven spirits' relationship to God. Okay, each of these four times it's mentioned, it, it talks about their relationship as it pertains to what's going on. So, in Revelation 1 4, it's their re, uh, relationship to God. So, uh, first we learn there is a message from the seven spirits. They have a message for us. And second, we learn that they are before God's throne. So, we understand that this message that they carry comes directly from God's throne. Okay, so that's important. Uh, the second time it's mentioned is here in our text, in verse 1. Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. Uh, now, this talks about their relationship, uh, their relationship of God to the church. They speak from the throne, and they're talking about the relationship of God to the church. Uh, third, uh, we learn uh, the message is from God. So these seven spirits issue a message from God to the church. They're before the throne, so obviously the message comes from God, and it's to the church. Uh, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5 is the third mention. Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now this talks about the relationship of the church to God. The relationship of the church to God. So the fourth lesson we learn out of all of this is, is that these seven spirits are also burning lamps of fire. And fire here represents impending judgment. Impending judgment. That means judgment that is on the verge of taking place. Okay? Impending means it's on the verge of happening. It will happen. Uh, the fourth time uh, they are mentioned is in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So the next thing we learn here, the fifth thing we learn, is their relationship to the earth. Well, this fourth thing, it, uh, mention of them, it's talking about the relationship. to. The, so the fifth thing we learn is that these seven spirits are the seven eyes of the lamb. Now these eyes are actually mentioned in uh, the book of Ezekiel in his vision of chapter 10. 
Ezekiel chapter 10, uh, verses 9 through 12, and I'll read that if, if you want to take time to look at that with me. Uh, uh, Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 9 through 12. And here the Bible says, And when I looked, behold the four wheels by the cherubims, one wheel by one cherub, and another wheel by another cherub. And the appearance of the wheels was as the color of a barrel stone. That's B-E-R-Y-L, barrel stone. Verse 10, and as for their appearances, they four had one likeness. That's basically saying the four wheels just looked exactly alike. As if a wheel had been in the midst of a wheel. Uh, I've actually got a picture uh, it's basically an artist rendition, okay? I mean, trying to explain what this looks like, uh, you can just imagine it. And he's still in the middle of the description, but what that means of a wheel that has been in the midst of a wheel, um, let's say you take two rings, one's a little bit larger than the other, and let's say it's standing straight up from you facing directly outward, okay? That, that ring, the bigger ring is... is facing you outward, okay? So the hole is from the left to the right, okay? And then that second ring, the smaller ring, is exactly opposite of that. In other words, it's facing left to right with inside of the other. So it's kind of like a cross, the two rings, one inside of the other, okay? That, that, that's kind of the picture that he's trying to explain here. So again, verse 10, and as for their appearances, they four had one likeness, as if a wheel had been in the midst of a wheel. When they went, they went upon their four sides. They turned not as they went, but to the place whither the head looked, they followed it. They turned not as they went. He says that twice. They turned not as they went. I, I imagine that's important for further study. Uh, verse 12, And their whole body and their backs and their hands and their wings and the wheels were full of eyes round about, even the wheels that they four had. So you see these wheels, uh, and they have all these eyes on the outside of them. Uh, that's just a crazy imagination. And again, I emphasize when, when you mention the word angel, um, and people always picture. Uh, a beautiful blonde-haired lady or a brunette or whatever whatever it is, but it's usually a female, a pretty female, in a white flowing gown. She's got her wings, and there's a halo on her head. That's not at all uh, the picture that is described to us of what an angel looks like in the Bible. That That is an artist's rendition, basically, of what he thinks an angel looks like. Now, I'm not saying that there's not an angel that doesn't look like that, but they don't all look like that. This this description in Ezekiel gives a far different picture of uh, these four wheels by these cherubs uh, that look like two rings, one inside of the other, and they've got all these eyes on the outside of them. That that would scare you half to death if that thing <laughs> come out and, and was visible to you, okay? And I imagine some of these other angels like Michael and Gabriel, uh, some of the ones that we know by name, uh, many of them have a far more uh, fierce countenance than what we give them credit for. Yes, they most certainly do. Um, but, but getting back to the thing here, all right, now these seven spirits 
are actually seven operations of one spirit, and that one spirit is the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's seven operations of one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Okay, not seven different spirits of God. Okay, uh, a comparison uh, of this phrase in the letter to the church at Ephesus, to the letter uh, to the church at Sardis. So let's look at the letter to Ephesus, which was at the beginning of chapter 2. And then here in the beginning of chapter 3. Now, Ephesus was so focused on the work that they had forgotten the love, which was the foundation of their work there. Uh, let's see, where does it say? Uh, verse Chapter 2, verse 2. I know thy works, and I labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them. Uh, and then he goes, don't. In verse 4, it says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. He's saying there that you've forgotten the love part. So in Ephesus, uh, they were so focused on the work that they had forgotten the love, which was the foundation of their work. Now here in Sardis, uh, they're so focused on the love that they had forgotten the work, which was the foundation of their love. So they, they were integrated together, but they were focused on the two different things and they both had problems. And, and basically the issue here in Sardis was that they were allowing everything in and not setting up any boundaries. It's all about love and everybody's welcome, which in our churches, everybody should be welcome. You know, don't take me wrong there. Uh, but there do have to be boundaries. I, I mean, it is the house of God. It's, it's not a jailhouse. It's not a, a rock and roll concert. Uh, there are some, uh, holy things to that you need to respect in the house of God. And, and a lot of these churches today have thrown that out the window. They've forgotten that. They are forgetting who they're worshiping. Um, now, I had mentioned that they were seven operations of one spirit. And let's talk about that a little bit. What are these seven operations? Uh, the first one is that the spirit reproves the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that is talked about in the book of John, chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. I'm not going to take time to read all these. We'll get held up for quite a bit. So I'm just going through these different operations and giving you references in the Bible. If you want to write them down, you can uh, go back and look at those a little later. So the first operation is the Spirit reproves the world of sin, uh, righteousness, and judgment. John, chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. Uh, the second operation is for those who repent and receive him, being Jesus Christ, they are given the comforter. And that comforter, we are clearly told in the Bible, is the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. Uh, that's in John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. Uh, the third operation is that these uh, people are then enabled and empowered to testify of Jesus. When we testify of Jesus, um, it, it's not a power that is within us human-wise, I guess is the phrase I'd like to use. It's not within our humanity to be able to explain what Jesus means. Now, we can. There is a head knowledge, of course, uh, but true testimony of Jesus Christ is in our, it comes from our heart. It comes from our soul. And, and those words that we speak come from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides us in explaining uh, what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's talked about in uh, uh, John chapter 15, 
verses 26 through 27. John chapter 15, verses 26 through 27. And also in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Uh, the fourth thing that the uh, operation of these spirits, uh, of the Holy Spirit, is they aid the believer in prayer. And that's mentioned in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. They aid the believer in prayer. And, you know, sometimes uh, mentioning that, sometimes we generically say a prayer. Uh, it, it's It's not very hard to fall into a category of all of our prayers are repetitions of the same thing. And we should guard ourselves against that. Uh, prayer is probably, to me, um, what I think, what I believe is the most undervalued gift that God gives us. I mean, surely the greatest gift, of course, is salvation. But the gift that He gives us after salvation is this gift of prayer, and we woefully understand how powerful a tool that is. We just don't use prayer probably even near its potential. Uh, there are a few what we call prayer warriors I'm, I know of. Um, and, you know, they understand the power of prayer. But even then, I, you know, when I compare it to what we think about, you know, how humans using the brain, I forget what the percentage is, but but even humans don't even use the full potential of potential potential of their brain i mean it's like a very low percentage of what we actually use of our brain so uh the holy spirit aids us uh and even in times there's sometimes when uh you need to pray and and you're in such sorrow such pain uh such trouble uh that, that you don't know what to pray and that holy spirit uh prays for us to the father so he aids the believer in prayer. Uh, the next thing, the fifth thing, is that it sanctifies the believer. It's the, the operation there is that it sanctifies the believer. And that's talked about in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Uh, the sixth one is that it helps produce fruit in their lives. Helps produce fruit in their lives, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, and some of those fruits are talking about, you know, uh, uh, different ones, uh, love being a, a very big one, that's something that we uh, need a whole lot of in this world that we live in today, uh, there certainly is, I, I, it, it amazes me at how quickly and how violently hate has become the chief emotion of people today uh it, it's all about being offended uh it, it's not about love anymore i you know I, I look i you know i was born okay i'm gonna give you a secret here i was born in 1969 so you know i'm 50 uh, turned 51 this year but I, i've seen you know a little bit but i hear so much about how people just generally respected each other right after world war ii uh, people got along, even with differences of political opinions, there was still that respect. Um, it's very hard to find that today. Uh, two people of opposing views, it's hard to find people that get along still after that. 
when they discover that. So it, here it helps produce the fruit in their lives. And as Christians, you know, we should um, show the love of Christ to others. And, and I think many times we, we do need help in that category. A lot of us do. Maybe not all of us, but a lot of us do. All right. And then the seventh operation of these seven um, spirits that it's talking about here is that they seal the believer until the day of redemption. They seal the believer until the day of redemption. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. And then again in chapter 4, verse 30. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. And then Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. And I want to take a minute to just read that one. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Okay, I'm talking about they seal the believer until the day of redemption. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. What does it mean by grieving not the Holy Spirit? That's talking about when we sin. When we sin, it grieves, it saddens the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is living within us. And when we commit a sin, uh, we become an offense. Sin and God are at war. And God has nothing to do with sin. And so the Holy Spirit, uh, it, it is grieved, it is sorrowed by when we commit so, so. And it says that we are sealed until the day of redemption. Uh, I know there is a lot of doctrines out there uh, of so-called believers, Bible believers, that, that actually believe that you can lose your salvation. Okay? This is a verse that, that we use in the Bible to clearly show that you cannot say you cannot lose your salvation. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Now your attitude and your actions may not always show that. Uh, but once you're truly saved, you're always saved. If not, and this is this is something to consider. If we are not always saved, if we can lose our salvation, then that doctrine and that thought is implying that the blood of Jesus Christ is not pure enough to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's not pure enough. And if his blood's not pure enough, then, uh, my friends, we are in some serious trouble. Uh, the Bible clearly shows that, that his blood was pure and it was holy, it was acceptable to God. And when that blood is applied, it is a one-time application. It does not have to be applied and applied and applied, thereby meaning that it is weak and inferior. Once it's applied, it's holy and acceptable to God. It's always there. So if you're truly saved, my friend, you can have confidence and, and peace in the fact that you're always saved. All right. So that's the one side of this uh, scale that we're talking about. One arm of the scale, which is the witness of God to the church. Uh, which is the seven spirits of God. Now, on the other side are the seven stars. This is the witness of the church to God. The witness of the church to God. Now, there is a debate over what these seven stars actually represents. And, and there's two thoughts here. One is that these stars uh, is, is representing the pastors or the bishops of these church churches talks about the pastor or bishop, basically, of these churches, the leaders of these churches. 
Uh, the other side of, of the thought is that it could be the angels in charge of these churches. I really don't know which one it is. We may get into it a little bit later and study up on it and, and nail it down for sure what it is. Uh, but the, the the main thought here is that these churches all belong to Jesus Christ. Um, he, he's the leader of the church. And the, the pastor might be the human leader of the church, but he follows Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ, you know, these churches belong to Jesus Christ. Now, uh, when mentioned with the seven spirits, we can see how they carry God's message to the church and the, and then the seven stars carry the church's testimony to God. Okay, so there's the two sides of this scale that we've been talking about. And this talks about the magnitude of its heavenly calling. The magnitude of its heavenly calling. Now let's look at the magnitude of its holy character in the next part of this verse. The magnitude of its holy character. Uh, the phrase in verse 1, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest. So this church has some kind of a name or a reputation is what it's talking about here. And uh, I heard it mentioned one time and I thought it fit well. And, and so I say it here that this church was considered the Alpha Mense star of local churches. There is a star called the Alpha Mense. That's M-E-N-S-A-E. -E. You can look that up and see what star it's talking about. The Alpha Mense star of local churches. Now, astronomers tell us uh, the light from the Alpha Mense star takes 33 years to reach us. 33 years to reach us. Now, that star could have, for example, burned out 30 years ago, but its light will still continue to shine on us for another three years. That's how far away it is, how bright it is, and how far that light has to travel to reach us. 33 years. Now, it could be a dead star. Right now, it could be a dead star, but we're still seeing that light from it. Uh, and, and that's exactly uh, a representation of what this church of Sardis was like. Although it's a dead star, and it's, it's continuing to shine, what the shine is that we see is the light from a brilliant past when that star was fully bright. But since then, it's gone out. But what we see is still that light until it dies out, okay? Uh, that, that phrase, thou hast a name. Now, that name, of course, is Sardis. And Sardis represents two thoughts here as far as uh, the reputation of its name. Uh, the first being a rock, and the second being a remnant. Now, the first being a rock. Uh, the Sardius stone uh, was readily found around Sardis. It is likened today to the ruby or garnet stone, which, if, if you don't know what they are, they're like a uh, dark red color. Ruby itself is a, is a color of red, a shade of red, and garnet is a color of red, almost like a burgundy color. It's a dark red color. Now, naturalists say the stone drives away fear. It gives boldness, cheerfulness, and sharpness of wit, and frees from witchcraft and sorceries. Now, this may truly represent the boldness and courage of the believers here to drive out that the old ways of the witchcraft of Jezebel and the sorcery of the Church of Rome that was present here. Okay, so that, that talks about 
it being a rock. Uh, now let's look at this idea of it being a remnant. And a remnant is a small part of something, uh, a very small part. Now, the Hebrew word sarid, S-A-R-I-D, means remnant. The Hebrew word sarid means remnant. Now, this truly represents those few uh, mentioned uh, uh, further on in verse 4. It says, thou hast a few names, even in Sardis. That's that remnant that it's talking about, okay? <clears throat> and they have not defiled their garments. So that tells us that they, they are staying true to the belief. Uh, now, there's another Hebrew word, which is sered, S-E-R-E-D. Sered, S-E-R-E-D. And it means a carpenter's rule or a line. A carpenter's rule or line. This represents the actions of the remnant who would bring... Uh, Well, yeah, represents the actions of the remnant. I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a minute. I'm sorry. I'll have to get back and finish my notes on that there. Okay, uh, the next phrase, it says, that thou livest. That thou livest. Uh, now, Albert Barnes, in his commentary on this section, uh, says, and I quote, the word life is a word that is commonly employed in the New Testament to denote religion in contradistinction from the natural state of man, which is described as death in sin. By the profession of religion, they expressed the purpose to live unto God and for another world. They professed to have true spiritual life. Uh, and I put, uh, uh, that's the end quote, by the way, uh, where he uses that phrase, they professed, I put within my own brackets there, uh, with their mouths. They only professed to be Christians with their mouths. Again, remember they had lost the, uh, the rule, the measure. They had forgotten the work, which was the foundation of the love. That's, that's what that is. Okay, so... Uh, Talking about that phrase, I, I'm going to break down a little bit of something here that may interest you. Uh, might make you mad, but uh, it's a little bit of history of religious faiths by name and their origins. Now, there's two lines here. There is the divine line, and then there is the deceived line. Now, right away, if, if you believe that all the religions of the world are right or correct, uh, then, then you've already got a problem. Uh, and I use this phrase a lot. If there is one God, there is one Son, there is one Holy Spirit, there is one salvation. Uh, Jesus says it himself. If there is one way, there is one truth, there is one life. If there is one book, then how can there be all these different ways to get to him? Uh, God was very regimental in the Old Testament to lay down that law to those Jews in exact measure. How could he not do that to us today or for us today? But in talking about these two lines, we'll, we'll talk about some of these names that, that you may have heard of, different belief systems and things. Now, now there are... Uh, some different doc doctrines out there. Okay, let me clear that up. 
there the name on the church does not totally represent exactly what's going on with the heart of all the believers within it. Okay, I'll, I'll say that. But let's get through this, and then I've got a point at the end, which which will kind of bring it home. But uh, first of all, the divine line. The divine line uh, started about uh, in the year 30 A.D. in the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church, of course, that's where uh, Jesus Christ was preaching and teaching. So that would have uh, taken root right there. It would have been the seed that was planted right from um, he who the church belongs to. Uh, from 35 to 40 A.D., we have mention of the Antioch church uh, in Acts chapter 2 the Antioch church. In 96 AD, uh, there is what is called Montanism, M-O-N-T-A-N-I-S-M, Montanism. Uh, this originated in a small province of Phrygia, which is in Asia Minor, was in Asia Minor, <laughs> Phrygia. Uh, their leader was a guy by the name of Tertullian. And if you went through our history uh, in, uh, of the uh, King James Bible, you'll, you'll know that name already. Tertullian is one of those that had a significant role in bringing about the Bible that we have today. Uh, 100 AD, there was this movement called the uh, Novationism. Novationism. N-O-V-A-T-I-O-N. I-S-M, Novationism. Uh, that started in the city of Rome. And one of their key doctrines was that mortal sins could only be forgiven by God, not a bishop, not a pastor. And listen, let's say it right up front. Only God can forgive sins. I mean, that that's very clear. Only God can forgive sins. Okay. Uh, 311 A.D., a uh, movement called Donatism. 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 D-O-N-A-T-I-S-M. D-O-N-A-T-I-S-M. Uh, this originated in North Africa. Uh, and they're mainly known for, the, they opposed the corruption by priests in the Catholic movement. Now, there could have been priests in other religions, but their main thing was this corruption of Catholic priests that was taking place where they were in North Africa. Donatism. Uh, later on, 650 A.D., there is Polycanism. Of course, the name Paul there. Polycanism. P-A-U-L-I-C-A-N-I-S-M. Uh, now, this took place in uh, Armenia. Armenia, and they were influenced by the Gnosticism movement. The Gnosticism movement, I, I believe, let me see, because I've got it written down. I think it's the book of Galatians talks about, let me see, i got to find it. I'm flipping between Corinthians. Uh, you... I think it's in Galatians. It mentions legalism, basically, in Galatians. But I think one of these small, let's see, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. One of these talks about Gnosticism. Uh, I wish I had written it down for you. I'm sorry. I really thought it was Galatians, to be honest with you. 
Let's see. I'm going to try a little more. I can't remember. <laughs> oh, well, if you look it up, I'm sure you can find it. Uh, maybe that's a good little subject to study, Gnosticism. Okay. Uh, what is the Gnosticism movement? Basically, uh, it's two basic principles. One, there is an evil God who is the creator and ruler. And then there's a good God, uh, which is a deity of, of a later world to come. In other words, right now we're dealing with an evil God in the creator and the ruler, but then uh, basically if you think like in the millennial reign, it'll be a deity of the later, a good God that'll come later. But but yeah, they had the Gnosticism, they had some other issues going on, but that, that was then the Polycanism movement. Now, later in 850 A.D., 850 A.D., there is Arnoldism, Arnoldism, A-R-N-O-L-D-I-S-M. Uh, their founder was Arnold, obviously, of Brescia, B-R-E-S-C-I-A, Brescia. Uh, they criticized the great wealth of the Catholic Church. The great wealth of the Catholic Church. Is there anything wrong with wealth? Well, there is one verse in the Bible, I believe, that is probably more misquoted than any other verse in the Bible. And you know where I'm going with this, if you know anything about the Bible. The love of, all, the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money. How many times have you heard people say money is the root of all evil? That is not at all what that verse is saying or even implying or suggesting. It's the love of it. You could be as poor as a church mouse. And if you have that love and desire in your heart for money, then that's the root of all evil. That's what it's talking about. And if there's any other thing going on in this world today that can show you the relevance of that, it is these lotteries that are going on. I know people personally that take a that make a good living, make a good living, and they take the majority of their check, and they're so focused and so hopeful that they're going to make that big win that they dump a hoard of cash in the lottery system for one of those tickets. They sure do. Yes, they keep them hanging on because they'll win a little bit here and there. But they never break even. Uh, they, they never break even, I'm telling you. And even if you look into the history and, and study some of these people that have won these big lottery tickets, look at how their lives have changed. Almost to a T, none of them end up better than where they started. Some do, okay? Some do, but not all. All right, so uh, Arnoldism. They criticize the great wealth of the Catholic Church. It's not that you have wealth. It's what you do with the wealth. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy at all. It's what you do with it. Uh, they preached against baptism and the Eucharist. Uh, if you're not familiar with what the Eucharist is, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. We do break it down further along as we get further along. Uh, but they did preach against baptism, uh, generally. Okay. Um, in 1173 A.D., there is a group called the Waldensians. Waldensians, W-A-L-D-E-N-I... No, sorry. W-A-L-D-E-N-S-I-A-N-S. 
There you go. Waldensians. Uh, they started in a city called Lyons, which is in northern Italy. That's L-Y-O-N-S, not L-I, but L-Y-O-N-S. Now, their founder was Peter Walso, W-A-L-S-O. So, Waldensians come from Walso. Uh, and he preached that poverty was the only way to perfection. So, you see, they... You know, that I just mentioned that you know there's nothing wrong with wealth, so obviously poverty is not the only way to perfection. The only way to perfection is salvation, and and we won't even be perfect here in this world. All we can do is try and be more like Christ, but we'll never be perfect until we receive our uh, glorified bodies uh, when we reach heaven, either by death or rapture. Okay, so you can try and think that you are perfect, but I'm sorry, you're not. <laughs> All right, the next, uh, let's see, in 1200 A.D. Um, all right, here's a good one. Albigensianism. Albigensianism. That's A-L-B-I-G-E-N-S-I-A-N-I-S-M. Albigensianism. Um. Uh, this group was located in southern France. Their chief belief was dualism. Dualism. That is basically the coexistence of two mutually opposed principles. That's good versus evil. Uh, they were exterminated completely by the Catholic Inquisition. I don't know what the year was, but it certainly had to be sometime after 1200 A.D. when they started, but anyway. Okay, so that's the Al Albigensianism movement. Now, in 1550 AD, there's a group called the Anabaptists. Anabaptists. A-N-A-B-A-P-T-I-S-T-S. The Anabaptists. They were located in Central Europe during the Protestant movement. They rejected infant baptism for believers baptism. Infant baptism for believer's baptism. Uh, you may ask the question, well, what's, what is the difference there? Infant baptism is a practice of many religions. Uh, a chief one I know of personally is the Catholic Church. That They're not the only ones. But they will bring in a baby and baptize that baby. And that baptism of that basic, uh, baby is is basically an acknowledgement that that child is saved and headed to heaven. It is their form of salvation. A believer's baptism is personally what I believe, and the Bible teaches it. Uh, baptism is an outward expression of what took place on the inside. Baptism is something that happens after salvation. Okay, Can you be saved without baptism? You certainly can't. But baptism is a doctrine that I believe that Christ uh, represented by himself being baptized by John the Baptist. And it is something that all believers should do. I, I, I do understand that there's probably some people in some places they don't have the uh, capacity, the ability to do it. Or, uh, you know, a good example of this is, is that it's not necessary. Look at the thief on the cross. Uh, when Christ told him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. 
Obviously, the man was saved. Where was he going to go to be baptized? He couldn't get down off the cross. Wait a minute. Hold on. Stop. <laughs> Time out. I got to go get baptized and then come back. Didn't happen. So are they saying that Christ lied? Uh, you tell him that. I'm not. <laughs> I believe him. When he said today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. I believe that. Okay. So they rejected. The Anabaptists rejected infant baptism for believers baptism. Uh, the name Anabaptist uh, originated as a mocking title by the Catholics. The term meant rebaptizers, and basically, you know, Catholics believed in infant baptism. But these people, once they got saved, they were baptized then, and so the Catholics were calling them rebaptists, which became Anna, which means re or, or repetition. So, Anabaptists. Uh, they were persecuted by the Protestants as well as the Catholics for their streamlined view. They were rejected by both. Uh, then finally, 1609 A.D. 1609 A.D. There is the term Baptists. Baptist. Now this term was first used uh, by a man named John Smith. That's S-M-Y-T-H. John Smith. He, is, he was a pastor in Amsterdam. So if you want to know where that name, title, Baptist, come from, that's where it came from. John Smith, a pastor in Amsterdam. So <clears throat> there we see some examples of the divine line. Uh, let's look at some examples of the deceived line. The deceived line. And it all started back in Genesis chapter 11. That's about 2500 to 3500 B.C. 2500 to 3500 BC, and it begins with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. This started the mysteries, and we'll mention that further on too. I'm just kind of giving you an overview here of these, this deceived line, but they started the mysteries and the worship of Cybele. If you want to know how to spell that, that's C-Y-B-E-L-E, Cybele, C-Y-B-E-L-E. The worship of Cybele and Addis, which is mother, son, worship. Mother, son, worship. The, now these uh, uh, people that were at this Tower of Babel, if you remember the story there, God spread them out. You remember he confused their languages and made them spread out? He had told them from the beginning to be fruitful and replenish the earth, not replenish the plain replenish the earth. He wanted people to spread out. These people were scattered since they didn't leave. God scattered them, but they would have kept their common belief systems. They would have remembered and taught their children and practiced what they'd learned there wherever they went. Okay. Later on, 1425 BC, Israel as a nation begins worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth. Now, this is talked about in Judges chapter 2 and verse 13. Judges chapter 2 and verse 13. Israel begins worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth is a Phoenician goddess of fertility. A Phoenician goddess of fertility. Now, we know this goddess by other names. Uh, the Romans call her Diana. The Grecians call her Artemis. And the Babylons called her Cybele which was the original goddess of fertility, Cybele. Now, Jeremiah 
44 uh, mentions Ashtoreth and gives her a certain title. And, and we're going to really get into this a little bit later on. Again, this is a general, but I want to give you this title uh, that you may know if if you've heard this before. This is where they get this title from. This is exactly where it originated from. Jeremiah 44, verse 18 through 19. It says, but since we left off to burn incense to the queen of heaven. Since we left off to burn incense to the queen of heaven. Who are they talking about there? That queen of heaven. They're talking about Ashtoreth. They're talking about Diana. They're talking about Artemis. They're talking about Cybele. The origination of the Babylonian mysteries and all of that. She was called the queen of heaven. Verse 18, but since we left off to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her, we have wanted all things and have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings unto her, did we make her cakes to worship her and pour out drink offerings unto her without our men. What are those cakes that it mentions there? Would you believe me if I told you that they were wafers of bread? Wafers of bread and drinks offered up to the queen of heaven. That's a title that the Roman Catholic Church uses when they speak of Mary. They have titled her the Queen of Heaven. You can look it up and, and see it. It's, it's there in print. Um, all right, that was in 1425. Now, later on in 990 B.C., 990 B.C., Solomon begins worshiping Ashtoreth. Solomon begins worshiping Ashtoreth. That's talked about in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 5. 1 Kings 11 and verse 5. Now consider this. This is the smartest man on the planet of the earth. Don't you think for a minute that you're too smart to fall for these tricks of the of Satan. <laughs> if the smartest man on earth could, you certainly could. We have to keep our guard up. Uh, 900 to 800 BC is when Greek mythology took off. 900 to 800 BC. In 720 BC, Babylon is mentioned for the first time in 2 Kings 17, 24. Babylon's mentioned for the first time. Why? Because they uh, are mentioned as bringing their gods into Samaria. So by bringing those gods in, they're recognized as coming from Babylon. Uh, 133 BC, Rome conquers Sardis. We've talked about that a little bit already. We're in this letter to Sardis. As a matter of fact, but Rome conquers Sardis and removes their sacred stone. Uh, I think we mentioned that a little bit last uh, episode, but that sacred stone uh, is probably, most likely, a meteorite or meteor, I think is the correct term, that, that fell from the sky. And of course, someone saw it and found it. And obviously, it fell from heaven. What are they? I mean, they're wrapped up in this worship of uh, all of these goddesses of gods of fertility and all this stuff yeah they're going to worship it of course but anyway so when rome uh conquered sardis they removed that stone uh from the temple of cybele 
And guess where the Romans are going to take it? They're going to take it to their home. And where is their home? Their home is in Rome. <laughs> Didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it does. They took this stone to Rome. Uh, Acts chapter 19 and verse 35 makes a mention of another group that uh, talks about a certain object like this. Acts 19.35, it says, And when the town clerk had appeased the people... He said, ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? What is that image that fell down from Jupiter? That's a meteor, a meteorite, or whatever the correct term is, but you get my point, right? Diana is the Roman goddess of fertility. Another name or the Queen of Heaven, and there's another mention of this meteor, meteorite, whatever it is. Okay, later on, in 200 A.D., 200 A.D., the Catholic Church is established. In 869 A.D., there is what is called the Great Schism. Great Schism, that is S-C-H-I-S-M, the Great Schism. Um Basically, in simple language, it means the great argument. This great schism splits the Catholic Church into two branches, known as, one side, the Greek-Russian Orthodox, and on the other side, the Roman Catholic. That's the two branches. One is the Greek and Russian Orthodox, the other is the Roman Catholics. Um, the 1500s, this is when the Protestant movement begins, in the 1500s. Why do they call them the Protestants? Because they were protesting against the Roman Catholic Church. All of these Protestants broke away from their original church of the Roman Catholic Church. In 1530, there were the Lutherans. Of course, their founder was uh, Martin Luther. Uh, the next year, 1531, the Church of England is established. In 10 years later, 1541, the Presbyterians were established. In 1602 AD, there are the Congregationalists. And 1785, the Methodists break away from the Church of England. So the Methodists weren't actually a, uh, what would you call it, a first division? From the Roman Catholic, they were a second division. They broke, there was, the Church of England broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, and then the Methodists broke away from the Church of England. Now, from these main branches, main branches being the Roman Catholics, the Lutherans, the Church of England, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, the Methodists, come all the other denominations of the entire world. The entire world all come from these branches. Enlisting these deceived denominations as a whole, remember, as I stated, and as it says in verse 4 of our text here, there are possibly a few in these denominations who are true believers. There is always a remnant somewhere. God always keeps a remnant. And so, you know, I'm not knocking the Lutherans. I'm not knocking the Methodists. I'm not knocking the Presbyterians. I have friends who are of each of these uh, religious denominations. I have friends who are Roman Catholics. 
but but they believe different than I do. I hold a different doctrine than they do. That's all I'm saying. But in my beliefs and what the Bible teaches and what I believe uh, that the Bible says, uh, they are deceived. I, I'm, that's, I can't put it any other way. It's, it's clearly what the Bible teaches. And we'll get into that as we get it. After we get through these letters and get into some of this other stuff, you'll just see what a master deceiver Satan is. And and it's sad, but it's true. All right. So we have mentioned this thought here of the church is fully weighed by the Lord. The next thought will be the church is found wanting by the Lord. But I'm going to stop here. So we'll pick up on that one on the next podcast. And once again, I'd like to give a uh, welcome. Uh, I think there's some new listeners out there, and I certainly want to welcome you. And again, I point out that my point here is just to teach the Bible. I love to teach, and I love to um, explore what the Bible has to say for us. Uh, It's an unending well of knowledge and information about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what greater thing is there to learn about and know about than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I certainly welcome you and, and I hope you're enjoying it. Um, I know I am. Uh, studying the Bible is is just something uh, that we should all do. We should all attain to do. So I encourage you to do that on your own, but I, I certainly enjoy uh, the fact that you spend your time uh, here with us, with the rest of us. Uh, all right. So Uh, I'm going to end there and want to certainly say God bless you. Um, Pray for each other. Love each other. But again, pray for each other. I probably will mention that a hundred times, but we we so underestimate the power of prayer. We so underestimate the power of prayer and what it can accomplish, what it can do. We certainly need to pray for this world. We need to pray for the nations that we belong to. um, And we need to pray for our family and our friends. Uh, If you've got nothing else to pray for, we certainly can pray for our family and friends. Okay, so thank you for joining us today. And I hope to uh, I hope you join us to listen to the next podcast. Okay, thank you so much for listening. God bless you and have a great day.